This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 143 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is, for my money, one of the funniest people of all time. The stand-up comedian, actor, writer, director, producer, singer, musician, and award show host extraordinaire, Ricky Gervais. The 55-year-old Brit, who has received 23 Emmy nominations, two of which have resulted in wins, is best known for The Office, a British sitcom that he co-created and co-wrote with Stephen Merchant, and on which he starred as middle manager David Brent. It ran on BBC Two for two seasons, followed by a Christmas special between 2001 and 2003. He's also closely associated with Extras, another British sitcom that he co-created and co-wrote with Merchant, and on which he starred as ambitious actor Andy Millman. It also ran on BBC Two for two seasons, followed by a Christmas special between 2005 and 2007. More recently, he has unforgettably hosted the Golden Globes four times, toured as a stand-up, and worked repeatedly with Netflix, creating, writing, and starring as the title character in the comedy series Derek, which ran from 2012 through 2014, and creating two TV movies, 2016's Special Correspondence and 2017's David Brent Life on the Road, the latter of which could return him to Emmy contention next month. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel, Gervais and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how almost all of his work has, to one degree or another, been a reflection of his own personal and professional experiences, including working in an office for many years after college. Why it's not worth it to him to work at all unless he has complete creative control over his projects and why he tends to make projects that run for only two seasons, perhaps with a special attached. How he arrived at his no-holds-barred approach to hosting the Golden Globes and what he would say if approached about hosting the Oscars. Why he feels that President Donald Trump is a natural extension of David Brent. What it was like for him to revisit Brent, his most iconic character, in David Brent Life on the Road, nearly 15 years after last playing him on The Office, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ricky, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. We always begin just with a basic one. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Whitley Estate in Reading. It was a poor working class estate. I was born in early 60s. How specific do you want? I know, <laughs> Which I know, hospital I, room? I, no, I remember no. the date. I, remember, I do remember the date. It's 25th right. of June, 1961. Um, my dad was a, a Canadian immigrant who, who volunteered for the war, came over, got my mum pregnant. That wasn't me. That was my <laughs> older brother. I had two more, and I was born 11 years later in the 60s. 
Yeah, I remember asking my mum when I was about 12 or 13, I said, why are my brothers and sisters so much older than me? And she went, you're a mistake. <laughs> Cheeky. I just laughed. Right. I thought, oh, they were all a mistake. Right, right. <laughs> Admit it. Yeah, so a typical, I mean, a typical very working class upbringing, if that makes sense. Sure. But, I, you know, I don't remember it as being, I, I think I was probably protected from the, the serious side of it, from the poverty. You know, I had everything I wanted. You know, mum used to cook and mend things and make things, and I had everything I needed for school. There was a school uniform, so I didn't, right. I didn't feel poor. Everyone was poor. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, of course. You know, um, and I learned early on I couldn't have a new bike and new trainers, but I could have any book. So, were you? I mean, I know you've probably gotten this one a million times, but I guess just to set up everything else, were you the class clown? Were you? The yeah, guy? you were. No, I, I was. Yeah, but uh, but. Not just me, you yeah. know, I, I was always, I always tried to hang around funny people. So my friends were funny first and then clever and nice second. And, you know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Right, it, right. That was always the first thing. You bonded over something funny. So all my, all my mates, for all years, whoever my best mate was, was the, was funny as well. And I've, I've always, all my friends are funny and my family were funny. So you gravitated because it was in the house? It was just people were funny around Everything you? growing up was having a laugh. It was that's what it was about. It was about paying your way, then having a laugh. And I learned that from you know my my old. Oh well, that was the men. The women carried on working, obviously. But the men, they paid their way, <laughs> then they could have a laugh. That's what it was about. Everyone knew they were going to die, so <laughs> they better have a laugh. And yeah. was there actual uh, professional comedy around you? Were you watching anything film? No, TV? no, no. We never thought that was a job. Yeah, you know. In fact, the funniest people you knew weren't the people on telly. They were blokes in the. They were your mates at school and blokes in the pub. Right. The funniest. The funniest person everyone knows isn't a professional comedian. He's their uncle or their best mate because you've got that that weight of investment between the two. Everything. Uh, it's it's you know it's familiarity and I've learned that as well from being a professional comedian that my tour, this tour mm. after seven years and sort of fifteen years in the business is the best tour I've ever done because everyone knows what I mean now they get me they know before I had to I had to I suppose flag up the irony flag up the persona so they knew but right. now I can get away with the same things you can get away right. with your best friends they know I don't mean that if I'm saying something ironic or stupid right, right. and they know when I do mean it because they know me Twitter's helped that a lot as well because right. you are yourself on Twitter whether you like it or not right, for better or worse right. usually for worse right. you know and I don't know I don't care who you are right. you can be you know if 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 Charles Darwin was on Twitter, he'd be being trolled, and eventually he'd say something <laughs> annoying and stupid. You right, know, it doesn't matter who you are. You know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> so the, the the people that are really funny though is that I understand that you're saying it's a product sometimes of just circumstance. You know, whatever's going on around you, how you choose to face that. But are really funny people born really funny, or can that be learned? Well, it. It's funny because there's a there's school of thought. Some people say, um, you know, you've got to have funny bones. Then some people say you can work it. And, and and they're both right. I know people who you wouldn't think were funny at all, you know, and they can they can create funny things and it can become part of their persona. You know, I meet some comedians. I think, why did you go into comedy? You are you are you are not enjoying this. You are miserable and right. you're but you're doing something right. And likewise, there are some people who never dream of going on stage and they're just they're just funny. You know, it is both. And you sort of introspect and wonder which one you are. And I don't know because I always thought, uh, well, the first time I did a bit of stand-up, it went pretty well. First thing I tried on telly, it went pretty well. When I write a sitcom or a joke, first time I write it, it's 85% there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you think, oh, I'm naturally funny. Right. But then I realised, well, actually, before I decided to step on stage or do something, I was 40 years old. So I'd actually been practicing okay. for 30 years and just not noting it down as right. a practice. But right. I was doing all this. I, I, was, I was observing people and being funny in the pub and at school. So I don't know. And also, not that it matters, but it's very hard to define. I think famously the psychologist Piaget was asked, which is more important for the intellect of a person, the nature or nurture? Yeah. And he said, well, that's like saying what's in, more important for the area of a field, the length or the width. <laughs> and I think it's both. Right. You can be the funniest man in the world and lazy and never get it off and never do it or, you know. And the opposite's true. You know, right. you, can, you can be not particularly, but really, really work it and find a niche. I think the best people are both. So when you went off to University of London Union, mm. 
what did you imagine your future would entail? I mean, you focused on philosophy, but was that, I, I don't, there aren't many people who make a living as a philosopher. So well, no, well, actually I got in to do sciences. I spoke, I, well, first of all, it was my first love, science and nature, really? and, and probably still is, you know, from the age of five, six, seven, I wanted to be a, everything from a marine biologist to an astronaut to a, you know, a, a, you're a big animal geneticist, yeah, animal, yeah, yeah. Or, or zoologist, anything yeah. to do with that. Um, and then at sort of 18, you know, David Bowie comes along and it's music. And then when that falls through, it's comedy. Right. But they're all, you know, you follow your passions and sometimes they become your, your job. So... Growing up, I, I did sciences. I, I got into university to major in sciences. And then I just thought, oh, I came here to join a band. I suppose there was part of me that thought, because I'd got a scholarship and it was free, and I was from a, a working-class background, I thought that I should do something vocational. I, I, I felt that I should pay back the government. For the, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Very questionable. And then I thought, well, hold on, though. If I, you know, I don't know if I, I've got still the passion to, to end up in a laboratory. <laughs> and this is true. Yeah. I was. We were sitting around drinking. You know, the friends that you you know that you meet in the first two weeks. And I said, say a letter of the alphabet. And someone went P. And I went philosophy. And I got up and I went along to the philosophy department. And I said, I want to do philosophy. You serious? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, What do you do now? I said biology. He went, We've well, risked two weeks. And I went, I'm so smart. I said, I'm really smart. Right. And he laughed. Right. And he gave me a little interview and he just said, what is art? And I waffled on. I can't even remember my answer. <laughs> right. And I think he liked me. Yeah. And I think I played the working class card as well. <laughs> I think I upped my working class accent and right. I thought that's going to be a tick. <laughs> that is definitely I'm going to be a definite quota fill here. <laughs> you know, I'm going to make this six percent. I'm going to make this six percent of working class in a you know right. in a city right. working right. class guy a posh university because I'd got in to do sciences right. which is a is a great science university I think people like Darwin at how you know so it was it was great but I I found out by accident that it's also very good for philosophy as well yeah so I, I skipped from one to the other and you stayed with philosophy I stayed with philosophy I did and I got my degree and I passed with honors and uh, I, I mean I loved it you know it's it you know I thought of it as oh I've always argued yeah so this is me <laughs> arguing I can you know it's winning an argument here do you think it has had any applicability with comedy in the future well only that it anything that's helps you think analytically is good. Yeah. And in fact, I, by far the thing that I shone in out of everything was logic because mm -hmm. I was a science major. Right, right. So logic for me was was easy. It was like I, the other people who loved Greek philosophy and poetry and all that sort right. of stuff, they were struggling with logic. Right. And I, I, just, I just thought, well, this is... This is easy, you know. Right. What I didn't want to do is read Greek. Right. That no. was my... Uh, right, what's the Tell use? me the gist of it. Right. No. It is, well, oh, tell me the gist of this. <laughs> so you graduate, yeah. and the way the story... But I was already signed to be a musician, because at university, in my second year, I hooked up with a guy and we wrote a few songs. We made a demo tape, and I got signed what in my of, third year. What kind of music? Electro sort of, you know... 1983. So as you're coming out, your your thought is... I'm I gonna... didn't even have to finish my degree. I thought, oh, I will, though, because yeah. I, I want to do that. Right, you right. Know? And, of course, I thought, well, this is it. I'm a, I'm a pop star now. Little did I, you know, at, at 20, you think you've got a record deal. Well, that's it, then. I'm, 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 I'm the next big thing. And, of course, it started and it was over within a year, I'd say. Now, what, what happened in that year? We released a couple of singles. Yes. Both nearly made it. Neither actually made it, and it was all over. Was your this was the band Siona Dance? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we were is, big in the Philippines, from what I've read. Uh, uh, apparently, yes. But <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I didn't. You didn't know. I didn't know that, and I think I think I was big in the Philippines after it was already over anyway. Okay. So I don't know. This is like searching for Sugar Man. I don't know. Exactly. If you ever saw yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing, wasn't <laughs> right, it? And it was I great. didn't know the twist, right. so it blew yeah. my mind. That oh, it's amazing. It's incredible. So yeah, I went to university. I went to do sciences. I came out with a philosophy degree and a record contract. <laughs> and a year later, I, I still I still have my philosophy degree, right. but I lost the record contract. And then I had to think about what I do. So I tried for a little while, staying there. And then I suppose I gave up. Well, failed, I'd say. <laughs> uh, failed. And I got a normal job at like 28. Well, which was the, the way that it's often presented, and I want to just ask you if this is inaccurate, is that 
you spent the next few years sort of in, I don't know if it was one or multiple, but like basically dead end jobs that were not especially fulfilling for you. No, dead end bands. Dead end bands. Yeah, dead end bands, yeah, because I left university and I was in a band. That fell through, but you sort of hang on. And you still, you know, I was like, I was on the dole because I, I didn't want to get a job because I wanted right. to be a musician. Right. And so I, I had no money. I was born with no money and I still had no money right. at 28. <laughs> with a degree? Even though I'd had a yes. record contract right. and a, a degree. Did you just blow through the record contract money? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You spend you spend that. And it wasn't, you know, it was it was a lot to me at the time for yep. six months, but it wasn't U2 money. <laughs> and so, no, it was, it was all over. And so at 23, mm-hmm. I'd say, I was back to having no money and living in a tiny room. But still chasing the music until still about 28, to, you're saying? Uh, exactly, yeah. yeah. And slowly giving up. You know, tough... I've got a couple of, you know, I did get a couple of like part-time jobs and, you know, rehearsal. Right. But by 28, the dream was over and I got a job. And then it was, at 28, it was, I was working in an office and my hobby was still playing music and stuff like that. So that, that was but the crossover. But you accepted that it I'd was accepted not... it, yeah. And I was, and I was sort of trying to get promoted and work my way up and, from, and I worked in a, a, an office from 28 to 36, yeah. and I'd work my way up to middle manager. And so... And that was the office. That was the... Okay, so just for... Since we're obviously going to talk about the office, can you explain those years, 28 to 36, where were you specifically? What kind of an office? What were you doing there? Who so were the people around you? I started off... It was a, a big student union, University of London Union, which was the sort of federal central student union for all the London colleges. Gotcha. Right? I'd gone to UCL, which was one of the colleges in the University of London, which are many, right. okay? King's College, right. or, or just like Oxford and Cambridge. Sure. So I went to do that and I worked on reception. Does that mean like answering phones? Exactly, yeah. answering phones, yeah. So I knew all about working on reception for yes. when I had to write Dawn's lines. Yes. <laughs> so I was a receptionist and then I got a job as an assistant to the entertainment manager. And then I got the job as entertainment manager. And I was entertainment manager from like 92 or 3 to 1997 when I left. When did uh, you Because I got a job at a local radio station. Okay. And again, I got a job at local radio station, which was called XFM, because I'd helped them get sort of... There's a thing they have to get their licence and they have to show that people are listening to it. So they came to me and said, well, you've got 16,000 students under your... Can you land out flyers? And I pushed it, and we got them their license. And as a reward, they gave me a job. Which for so, you must have been nice because you want to maybe keep a toe in music. So It was great for me because yeah. it was, you know, as an ENTS manager at Student Union at sort of 35, 36, it was probably an average wage. It was it was okay. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, this was suddenly the sort of free market, and the wages were great. Yep. And it was still close to my house. All these, these, these decisions, these are how I make my decisions. Yeah. And I thought, great. And so I was the head of speech because I thought I knew all about youth culture. Mm-hmm. I don't think I did particularly. <laughs> and they said, you can do a show if you want. And I honestly, the first time I opened the mic to do a show, I, I, I thought I was going to swallow my heart. I was so nervous. And I was doing my J job. And then my phone in was at night. And I said, I've got to drop one of these. Yeah. And they said, well, the... The radio show was just a bit of fun, but you know, keep the job. so I kept the job, and I sort of missed it. And I used to write things for DJs, and they'd sort of be funny. Yeah. But the DJs weren't doing them right, so I said, <laughs> I'll, I'll, "I'll just go on myself." Right. So I went on, you know, in the day during my job, I went on every every DJ show and did a little bit, and of course, mine could be really sort of it could stand out because yeah. they were doing a three hour show right. and talking and having to talk for us. I could come in with a little home two minute bit and, and sort of steal the show right, a little bit. Right, right. <laughs> and that's what I did. And in the end I was terrible at my job. Of the, oh, the oh, job. terrible. Yeah. Right. Terrible. And they said, okay, just go, go do that then. Just do <laughs> just that. Do the show. Just yeah. do that. Right. And I did that for a, a year or so. And from there I got a phone call from channel four who was starting a new three times a week, 11 o'clock at night again, show called The 11 O'Clock Show, which was like SNL, but off the charts in what you could get away with. Really? 
Oh, I still look back now and I can't believe the things we said and did. And it's not, though, like SNL is limited by being on a broadcast network. Yeah. Is Channel 4 the same sort of thing? Well, Channel 4 is a it is a broadcast network, yeah. you know. It's it not was, like it was a early, But a... they wanted, that's what they wanted. They were cutting edge. So their, so their promise of performance was to give an alternative to BBC One and ITV right. One. Right, right, right. So, so they were the, you know, they were more like HBO. So we went for it. And it, it was everyone's most hated and most loved show. It got it got its demographic. And what was so what was on Channel Four that you were doing there? What it was now? So now, uh, so again, I popped up. Right. And the first thing I did, and this is my first TV. Yeah. And I was still on the radio right. before I, I left to do this. Bigger. Right. But once again, you know, the money went up again, so I had to do less to earn the same money. So now <laughs> I was like, I was probably earning as much as I was in my full-time day job right. for two minutes or three minutes because I was thinking, this entertainment, Larks, this is easy. Yeah. <laughs> and I was sort of older. Right. I was I was already sort of 36, 37. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't care about it. I just went, I did my own thing and I, I, I was, I'd walk away if they didn't let me do it. And <laughs> and so I went on and I played this character. It was a, a news report because it was an alternative news show right, as right. well. And I thought, I've, I'd always thought it'd be funny if... A newsreader, because newsreaders have to be so impartial. Yes, yeah. And I thought it'd be funny, how, when they get bad news, why don't they comment? <laughs> I would. And so I'd say, I'd go, you know, I'd get a terrible comment, I'd go, nurses have struck for pay. And I'd go, no, don't get me started on nurses. <laughs> you know? And I'd, I'd do this, the whole, the whole joke was right. that this guy was, it was an opinionated, right. and he became a sort of, he was sort of like a right-wing bore. <laughs> And he'd say the most awful things as a satire. It was like, a, I suppose, a, an Archie Bunker, but slightly more, a white, a, more of a white right. colour Archie Bunker, you know. And this quickly got a following. C- quickly got a following. They yeah. gave my own show, which was Meet Ricky Gervais, which is right. a chat show, a spoof chat show. Right. And that's when I started feeling that it, it was harder than I thought, because when I went out and no one knew me, I was saying these things, but now I was saying, and now they found out that was his real name. Right. But now he's saying horrible things. <laughs> Is he really like that? Right. So that was my first taste of irony failing. Right. People going, oh, and I thought, well, hold on, though. We did this in the right. 60s. <laughs> We've been through this, haven't we? Right. Why do we, we still have to explain what irony and satire is to people? Why do we care? And I was going, I'm still going to do it. I said, I'll write the letters of, and they let me, they let me keep going. And I just rode the wave. So I started with the backlash, really. And you've, it's never, never left. <laughs> right. Yeah, never, never, never left, no. And going back to my first point, yeah. now people get me. Right. right. Now people get everything I say. So I'm saying all those things that I ever did, and everyone gets it now. They get it now. So that must feel nice. You don't have to it's brilliant. feel extra it, it's brilliant. pressure to it's explain ab- yourself. No, I don't, I don't have to explain because everyone in that room is, is, knows me, is clever enough to get it, and, you know. So what you're saying, which what, what the Channel 4 leading into the chat show... All of this brings us, I think, right up to the cusp of The Office. And before we go there, though, I just want to ask you, looking back on those years, 28 to 36, that you were in an office, mm. how would you describe your outlook on life at that point? Were you disappointed? Were you no, unhappy? No, I was just, again, it was fine. I was satisfied. I'd walk to work. I had a job. I, I knew I was n- never going to be a millionaire. Mm-hmm. I knew I was probably too old to be putting on discos and bands for students. But it was an easy job. I was pretty good at it. And, you know, evenings and weekends were my own. It was yeah. like that. It was a normal job. Right. Just because it was around entertainment. Right. It's still a job. Right. You know. But, you know, I wasn't digging ditches and I wasn't hiding behind a wall with a gun. You know what I mean? It was an easy, okay job. So I wasn't thinking, God, I'm wasting my life. I should be an international <laughs> comedian. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, you can't I, think, I'm yeah. never going to win a Golden Globe here. <laughs> People don't think like that. You don't don't think like that. No, no, no. And all these little tiny, there were little jumps, there were little leaps that you look down the road and go, wow, that's crazy. That's only 15 years ago. But at the time, it just seems normal and gradual when you don't, you know, the 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 water's warming up. You're right. not jumping into a boiling vat of water. It's just gradually warming right. up around you. No, you that's know? why I like to approach this this podcast in this way, because I think people assume, oh, Ricky Gervais was born and born Ricky Gervais, uh, as they know him. This is, I think, how I think I, I'm a late starter in everything. You know, I didn't get, again, I didn't get a job to 28. I didn't, right. I didn't you know, 
start doing this till I was 38. Right. And I, then... didn't, I didn't start getting fit till I was 48. <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late. Right, no. It's never too late. One thing that I don't want to gloss over because I think, uh, again, leading into the office, Stephen Merchant, with whom you created the office, right? Yeah. You guys first worked together at that radio station? Yeah, but he was my assistant, but he right. he left. Uh, I think he knew it was a sinking ship. <laughs> <laughs> but were you guys starting, you were doing comedy That's together? That's when I first showed him my character that was David Brent. Yeah, uh, I had already yeah. shown him that, and I did loads of little characters. So uh, when we did The Office, it, it was around David Brent. It wasn't even ambiguous that, what should we write about? It was... Let's write around that character. And had David you know? Brent popped up on the radio station or on one of those earlier only, TV shows? Only, uh, no, actually, I did a, I did do a leaving when I was at the real, my real office. Yeah, I did do a tape of a, a spoof documentary about my boss leaving, and it was a little office thing while you were still working at the yeah, office. Yeah, and it was my mate Glenn with a little camcorder, and I'd get people to be interviewed and say horrendous <laughs> things. <laughs> Like, what was he like? And right. they go, well, he was terrible he, once he touched me in the lift, <laughs> right? And so so there was that. I was always fascinated with fake documentary. Really? I was, but my favourite film was Spinal Tap. I was fascinated with real documentary. I'd watched a lot of those quaint docu-soaps yeah, of yeah. the 90s right. where ordinary guys got famous. <laughs> and I was fascinated with fame. I was always fascinated with fame. Why do you think that was? It was always odd to me. It, was always, it always found strange to me that why people would scream at pop stars and cry and <laughs> why people would put so much worth in doing... I was thinking, well, they're, they're not good just because they're famous. Right. Do you like them? Right. And it was like there was no... There was n nothing discerning about right. it. It was right. like if someone was on the telly, they were good. Because I was like, well, no, they weren't. You've got an opinion. You know they were good or bad. It's like, it's very odd. And and I thought it was the peak of it. And it just isn't. No, it's The last 15 years, it's exponential. Right. You know. And I know that's affected how David... The David Brent's universe in the in the newest incarnation. It's but. all about that. Right. It's the 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 life on the road is about David Brent and obviously, but it's also about how the world's changed since the office. It's about the last fifteen minutes of craziness and people living their life like an open. Because he's wound. basically stayed the same, but we just he's, looks differently because. And the we world. like him now because right. we realise that he's you know he's Terminator One right. up against T right. Two, which is a di <laughs> just a different. It's a different animal, you know. Right. You know, the, the alpha males have changed. Fame has changed. It's insatiable yeah. now. People do anything to be famous. And it's an unwritten contract with the TV shows. You know, people get on Big Brother by promising to behave badly. Right, and right. they go, you promise, you're, you're in there. <laughs> people get on The Apprentice by saying, I would destroy anyone who stands in my way. When did this new this new bravado, this new cruelty right. come out? In, not, not in comedy. No. I mean in real life. Well, you it know? May, and it may well have paved the way for Definitely. a Donald Trump or somebody, D right? Donald Trump's got more in common with David Brent um, than he has with JFK. <laughs> He's a man who's always wanted to be loved and famous, and uh, who isn't quite as clever as he thinks. Right. And, you know, you know, he's got this delusion that everything he says is good and right, and he convinced himself and enough other people. And and that's like David Brent. <laughs> David Brent walks into the room and says, "I am the funniest guy you'll ever meet." Right, and believes the, he can make whatever. Yeah, great and he again. says, "No, you will never work with a boss like me." He he he's his own cheerleader, you know. Okay, so from these early earlier incarnations of David Brent, you guys now, how do you end up with pitching The Office to, of all places, BBC Two, which is public TV, right? I think if I'd have sent off a script of David Brent, man says something that's not funny, no one laughs, he looks at the camera and touches his tie, it would still be in an executive's drawer. <laughs> they had to see it, it right. had to be performed. The, the, it was all about body language, more than the written word. David Brent sometimes doesn't finish his sentences. Right. You know, it was all about, it was important, I showed them that, and that's when we went to my old office, I used to work in the, the office, yeah. and used mates that were in the background. They were working there. That's you know, and I just walked around ad libbing. That was that was that that tape we sent off. Everybody was me ad libbing for fifteen minutes <laughs> as David Brent, right? <laughs> and the one scene that was sort of written was a was a, a sketch I wrote in about nineteen ninety five, which was called CD Boss, which was him interviewing the woman for the the job that ended up in episode five, series right. one. And it was a bit different then. He was more he was more sort of like lascivious a little bit lecherous and creepy and i thought that will lose too much sympathy 
Do you know what I mean? It's a fine line. He can line. be a buffoon. He can right. be a man child. But if he's if he's a bit creepy, well, that's where um, Trump carried on with the part. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> exactly. It's it's it's. Oh, it should be unforgivable. Right, right, right. It should, right. It should, you it think. should be you, unforgivable right. to me. To me, yeah, I know. Yeah, to abuse women. Right. And so. And then that that was it, really. That was it. It was always... I so you send off that tape to BBC? Yeah, too. and invited for chat. And I I, um, I remember I said, oh, I'm, I'm starring in it. I'm doing it all ourselves. Or I'm walking. And they, uh, they said, all right. And I think in retrospect, the reason they let an idiot off the street <laughs> do it all was because I was low risk. Yeah. It went out on BBC Two, half nine in July. You know? And you were not getting any pushback on some of the edgier things in there. They're not well. Again, it was It wasn't that edgy either. Yeah. It wasn't. It, if you look back at it, you yeah. know, the, apart from the odd word, it wasn't. It wasn't edgy. It was. It was. You know, the, the paradigms would had been set by real docu soaps. Right. Right. You right. know, and because it was a documentary, we always said, well, we can always bleep that if right. you want. Right. You know, we gave them the. And we dropped all these things. Originally, we were going to have someone pixelated, and we thought, well, I don't know, I, I didn't really want to play with the gimmicks. Because right, right, right. it was, you know, it is a traditional sitcom right. if you look through all the the sort of zeitgeistiness, and it's, it is a, it's about a group of people. But I think about one and a half million viewers, which is fine, enough to get a second series. Yep. But then they repeated the first series, and it went up to two and a half million. And then by the time the second series came along, it started at like five million. So it just kept going and going, word of mouth, you know. But it was the reason that you played David Brent when it seems like, maybe I'm wrong, but is your greater passion between writing and acting is writing? Um, It it is, but again, it sort of comes as a package because, you know... Only you can interpret your writing. I think so. I think I I only got that job because I... Because it, it was it was me, and there's part of you in everything, and there's part of Brent and all of us. Same with Andy Millman. That's another part right. of my personality, and then and Derek's another part of my personality. And so, you you know, it always starts once I can come up with themes that. But if I start with a character, I know because it's it's happened somewhere along the line that character has happened. Even if it's a Frankenstein of right. people or it's me, right. it's happened at some on some level. So everything falls into place, and then. I suppose I directed to protect the writing, yeah, yeah. and then I produced to, di- to protect direction. So it all comes as one thing. And You'll once have... you've done that the first time out, it's going to be hard to relinquish that on future. Exactly. And yeah. once if it works, they they keep giving it to you until you you know. And I've always said I'm not. I, you know, it's not that I think I, I, I'm the best person for the job on every one of those facets. It's just that. Well, this is mine. Do your own. Right. You know, it's not, people say, "Why do you want to do everything?" I say, "Well, I, I didn't feel like I'm doing everything. I'm doing one thing. Right. That's just that's all part of one thing, package, which is yeah. which is realizing your vision, the thing that's in your head. Right. It's like buying a a model of an aeroplane in bits, you know, those those kit things, yeah. and getting someone else to do it for you. <laughs> well, I don't care if you can do it better. No. Where's the fun in right, that? Right. I'm making this one. You make your own. You know. You once said, "Quote." I was the laziest man in the world before I made The Office, but now I'm addicted to that sort of success, close quote. First of all, when you say you were the laziest, obviously, how lazy could you have been if you're doing all these different tasks on The Office? You were, or it was only for The Office. Well, you- what I mean is, I think that, I think what I mean, I don't know if that's a, a quote or I, I got it wrong when I said it, I meant I'd never tried my hardest at anything at before anything. The Office. Okay. I always prided myself, I was a smart kid, so... I knew I could pass an exam without that much revision, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I passed. I, I didn't, I didn't worry about getting A plus. Mm-hmm. I worried about passing. Right. And so, if I could pass and do nothing and play football, that's that's a better option for me than studying and getting an A plus. You know. And that sort of changed my mind a little bit. I, I, I thought I got addicted to A plus. <laughs> and the second part of that. No, I'm lazy again. No, 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 no. But but the second part of, of that quote. But now I'm addicted to that sort of success. Close quote. Does this come back to this interest in? I I I totally get that this is not the same sort of uh, chasing of fame that you're talking about with Kardashians and people that are nuts. But when you got such a huge response to The Office, to the extent that I think a week into it, you said you were getting offered starring roles in films. Yeah. But it wasn't that. That's why I, d- I didn't mean that sort of success. I meant pride in my work. Pride, okay. I knew The Office was good when I finished it. Not that I, I didn't need the Not BAFTAs. And right. I didn't need the BAFTAs to tell <laughs> right. me it was good. Right. I, I really didn't. And that sounds like an arrogance. But what I mean is, I know, I know 
And when I say it's good, I mean it turned out like I wanted it to right, turn out. Right, That's right. all I think good is. That's what success is for me, getting your own way and being happy with it. And if you if you do it your way and it turns out like you want, you're bulletproof because nothing else changes that. Nothing, you know, I couldn't be prouder of the things I've done if they hadn't won awards, if they hadn't made money. Do you know? Because you know that uh, at least when you're in all of those capacities, you know that whatever it is is the realization of your vision. Nobody else's. And it's the creative process that gives me the buzz. Right. It is the, you know, obviously I want it to be seen. I right. don't write poetry and hide it in a drawer. <laughs> but I just think it's it's more fun to do something your way than I think do it someone else's way and it'd be more successful. And also to do things that you can personally connect with, right? Because after The Office, the next thing, well, obviously The Office had these very personal connections for you, things that you'd experience then so the office ran the the two seasons 2001 and 2002 I think right and then the special and then was the Christmas special. the Christmas special 2003 so but by the time you now are on to your next thing with extras 2005 2006 you yourself are now a well-known exactly. person. So I, that's, is- all, that's, what, uh, that's all I knew, right, about what you know. That's all I knew when I came to this game. So I worked in office for 10 years, so that's the thing I knew about. I'd been a, a people person, watcher, so I, that, that's what I did. And you're right, then I've got to write something else. So I could do that again, or, you know. But I thought, well, no, I've been in media now for five years, and that's crazy. That's still crazy and exciting and, and odd to me. And I remembered all the fears that I had about becoming famous, and I thought I'd put that in extras. So while there is still the, while there's that personal connection to it, David Brent wanted to be liked by everybody around him. Yeah. Is that how you felt when you were in the office? Uh, when you personally were in an, in an I office? Didn't, I didn't think about it, but it's yeah. clearly it's clearly there, I think, with most performers. And, of course, I'd rather, I'd rather be liked than hated. Sure, sure. But I, I suppose with maturity, you realise it's, it's better to be, you know, hated for something you are and mean it than liked for something you're not. And that's where Andy Millman was, right? I think it was the flip side of David Brent in a way. I've talked about it in terms of like, you know, Stan and Ollie. You always need a Stan and you always need an Ollie. Now in the in the office there was there was lots of stands and one Ollie, which was Tim. Right. You know, he was the one that he thought he's the normal one. He's the one we identify with. And there's right. all these crazy people who do idiotic things. And uh, and in extras, I did the same sort of format, but I made me the Ollie. I made me the guy who thought he was right and he was surrounded by idiots. Another way of looking at it between Brent and Andy Millman is the the satisfied fool and the dissatisfied Socrates. So Brent was a satisfied fool. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he had this little delusional armour that he built up think well I'm, I'm yeah they can't be laughing at me right and laughing with me right. not at me you right. know Andy Millman knew that he was at the bottom rung of the ladder and he hated it so that was his Achilles heel that he didn't like it so he rallied against it and I also like the theme in extras that it doesn't always pay to be the smartest person in the room you know the Lisa Simpson syndrome right. that she's not she can't understand why she's not the most popular because she knows all the answers you know right. and Woody Allen played with that a little bit as well like he'd do an intellectual joke but he'd see the idiot getting off with a girl and he'd go what <laughs> why am I not? you know so that was right. Andy Millman a little bit right. it's like why has he got that part right. Right. you know so it's whinging Andy Millman might have been right, but he was whinging. Right. So I made him a little bit of a, even though he was cool and on the outside, he thought, he picked up loveyisms. <laughs> he was a little lovey whinger. Right, right. Well, I want that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, and, and the nice thing, interesting thing is that with all of these, there's, I guess, maybe in all good comedy, there's got to be an underlying truth to some of the craziness. And my, I mean, one of my favorite extras things is where you've got Kate Winslet talking about how. She's been nominated five times yeah. for an Oscar. She's never won. She's the only way you win. She's concluded is you got to go play a fucking Holocaust yeah. movie or a disabled or a disabled. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And yeah. what? Like a year later, she goes and she does wins, the reader yeah. wins for a Holocaust. And I told movie. when she won the Golden Globe. Yeah. I got up and I said, "Told you, Winslet." <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, this is a good transition because now I want to. You know, it's only been it's it's four nights of your life, but they are four nights that will never. Be forgotten the nights that you've hosted the Golden Globes. Sure, uh, I've been lucky enough to be in the room for a few of them. It's I've never seen anything like it, and I've just got to ask: How did it come about, and why did you agree to do that versus? 
I would imagine the Oscars have probably asked you, right? No. This is all I've heard about that. Yeah. I heard that they asked someone at my agency, would he be interested because we're creating a list? Now, I, that is so vague yeah. as to not even be an anecdote. <laughs> right. So I I reckon they haven't. Was that after you'd already done the Globes a few times? Yeah. It was after. they're the, probably it was, scared. It was after the first time. Right. Okay. <laughs> probably before the second. <laughs> that's right. right. No, but the funny thing about that is that's that it feels like nothing to me. That was a three-hour gig. I didn't care, win, lose, or draw. I'm not beholden to any of those people in that room. I, I knew that Monday morning I'd be creating, writing and creating my next sitcom or, you know. But it was crazy because <laughs> it means nothing to me that. it It's just, when I do a, a sitcom, mm -hmm. I'm working on that every day for three years. Mm -hmm. And it goes out and that's it. With the Golden Globes, I turned up, I wrote a few gags. The first one, I wrote a few gags about two days before. Right, I didn't care. I, I had a few things. I, I didn't. It means nothing to Even me. Even though you're in front of the entire business that you're trying to be, a, you are and are gonna, hoping to remain a part of. You don't mind either bombing in front of them or offending them or or any of that. No, because I'm never trying to do that. And if you worry about who you're gonna offend, it, it's it's ludicrous because it's impossible to not offend someone. And, and you I, don't I, care about a return invite either. Because well, no, but I, I know I'd rather do a good job. And also the other right. thing is that w as a comedian. Sure, it's their night, and it's a mutual backstab thing, and it's great, and that's right. lovely. But don't televise it then, if that's all you want, because the 200 million people watching at home aren't winning awards. Right. There's nothing in it for them. They're not millionaires. They're not in that room. I tried to make it a, a spectator sport, so I had to play the outsider. I played the fat bloke at home in his pants who, doesn't, <laughs> who, who thinks those people are overpaid. That's who I played. I had to. Imagine if I'd have gone out there and went, hey, George, thanks for letting me use your uh, villa in Italy. Hey, hey, Brad, how you doing, man? We play, are we on for basketball Tuesday? It would be nauseating. Right. I had to go out there, but swigging a beer, pretending that anything, I could say anything. But if you, if you break it down on what I said, mm -hmm. nothing was that bad. And nothing, there was no official, that went out at 5.30 on network television, mm -hmm. right? How, with no... I've never broken a rule of pro so right, how bad FCC, could it yeah. be what I oozed it with was attitude right. so it looked worse than it was it looked like I was doing a, a roast it looked like I was playing the rat pack with all these guys and the shots of the <gasps> and what made it worse you know it, nothing I said was that was that crazy or bad you know in fact I thought uh, the first one was very tame. And the reason I did it again was I thought, oh, I could have done better with that. I could have gone further. <laughs> Remind folks, that, so the second one, what made that that much further up down the line? I was better. I, I, I wrote better jokes and I went for it more. And I realised because it was a room of people talking, the first one was sort of gentler and I was sort of like doing little, you know, things with these people and sort of like, little, you know, half sketches. And it was gentle and soft. But it's a room full of people who are loud and getting drunk. And I thought, I've got to get their attention here. Their attention span. I've got to do one-liners. I've got to come out and do the big one-liners of the big people in the room. I've got to go for NBC. I've got to go for the Hollywood Foreign Press. Right. I've got to play the guy who bites the hand that feeds him. That's what I've got to do. How often do you, from those nights, how, how many people reacted who were, who were targeted, reacted... Negatively, because I will say the only one that I'm aware of, and I thought it was the, I remember dying when you said this line, you introduced the president of the HFPA, Philip Burke, and he said, quote, I just had to help him off the toilet and pop his teeth in, close quote, and as he came out, and he yeah. did not have he a sense like of it. humor about no, his, that, that, that he didn't like quote, it, quote, no. Ricky, next time you want me to help qualify your movies, go to another guy, close quote. I know, and I thought the Hollywood Foreign Press hated me, but it turned out, in retrospect, talking to everyone in the Hollywood Foreign Press, that he was the only person who hated yeah. me and took it personally, and, I, I, and I, he's a sweet guy, yeah. but, you know, again... You know, I have to have a go. You know, he's arguably the most powerful person in that room. I've yep. got to go for the bloke who hired me. I've got to go for NBC. I've got to go for the Hollywood <laughs> Foreign I've got to go for the billionaires. You know, I've got to go. I can't. Otherwise, what am I doing? Who am I going for? <laughs> I'm, I'm going after the homeless. Right. You know, that wasn't a room full of wounded soldiers, <laughs> no, no, you no, know. No. Um, so, uh, yeah, I heard he, he he wasn't a fan after that. But, again... Didn't I, you get invited back, though, after that one? Didn't, uh, or was that yeah, the most... I was, I was, yeah, 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 you came yeah, back. I think, I think he wasn't there on the third one. And then the third <laughs> one... And then they got it by then, the third one. And then three years off, 
And then the fourth one, again. Will uh, you ever do it again? I would, yeah. You would? I would, yeah. How about the Oscars? Is that a different vibe? If they did come with a formal offer, it's such a different field. People are not drinking. Uh, the, answer's, not- the answer is if they say the same as the Golden Globes, yes. What do you mean if they say the same as? You can say what you want. Oh. And, we, and we won't vet anything. That's what the Golden Globe says. You can do what you want. And we, you agree I'm not going to violate the, uh, the, the FCC or the whatever. The Golden Globes, they didn't even, when I, when I did the run through, I didn't even do the jokes. There's nothing on the prompter. I, do, I go out there and I do. They're, they're not on the prompter. Those jokes, right? I, I, I you just memorize I, it. I read, yeah, because if it's a if it's a good gag, I know what to do. Right. And I, I'm being a comedian that night. I'm not being a presenter. I'm playing. I, I'm be, I'm being a comedian. I'm going out there. I'm doing my own timing. I'm playing it. You know. So all it's going to take for Ricky Gervais to host the Oscars is for them to say. We will not be in your rehearsals. Exactly. We'll leave you alone. Yeah. Or, or with their blessing, I can do what I want. Right. And they'll never do that. If they did do it, I would do it and I'd go for it. And I'd alienate half the, the population. <laughs> well, that, that's fine by me, though. Right, right. I'd still rather do that than not do it my way. I sound like Sinatra. <laughs> um, this would be a good year for that, it right? It would be good got... because I couldn't turn it down. I couldn't turn... I can't turn down... Do what you want. How can how can anyone turn down do what you want? But I mean, especially after the Moonlight Lal and uh, Screw Up and some of the other things, Oscar's yeah. so white. I feel like you could have, in in a lot of ways, people. You know, the Golden Globes are are great, but nobody they don't get quite the magnitude of attention as the Oscars. The Oscars, no, well, that, no the, the Oscars uh, in entertainment terms is the biggest award show on the planet still what's great about the Golden Globes is um, wherever you think of it is in that pecking order but you know it's up there it's big 200 million people around the world it it is more of an industry party it's not a stuffy they're there they they blatantly want all those big names there you know and and I've, I've teased them you know, I tease, I tease them every time. You know, <laughs> and I say the Martian deemed a comedy, right. and look, look, lo and behold, there's Matt Damon. Right. He's here. Right. He's turned up. You know, and I, I, you know, I do. You should tease them because right. the thing is, the end of the day, I don't care. I don't. It's not to be taken seriously anyway. So why do people take it so seriously when they change the rules or want something? I go, I don't. It's. But it's, I think the underlying thing there that separates you from most people is that, and even most comedians, is that they will only go so far because it does matter to them yeah. to be accepted by these circles sure. that they run in. Yeah, but I have no animosity for anyone in that room, although I, I go out there to tease. I'm a court jester for right. the night, and I don't go out there and platform and trying to get my political agenda across because it's not... I. I it's Who cares? Right. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm going out there to make people laugh, and so I'm going after... I'm going after the elephants in that room right. to do with that room. You know, so I go after it was behaviours, mm-hmm. their public behaviours that everyone knows about anyway, and I, I tease them. And Uncle so, Mel. I, I sometimes <laughs> invite people back into polite right. society by um, giving them the chance to be roasted. Right, right. Again, I've got nothing against Mel Gibson, nothing at all. He's a, he's a great director, but I can't just say, ladies and gentlemen, the director of Braveheart. Right. It wouldn't make sense. No, no, it no, just wouldn't no. make sense. I've got to go, do you remember that time? <laughs> you know? It, it, it's mad. It would be mad for me. Imagine if I just introduced yeah. everyone as right. what they'd done. Right. Just that was it. That was the intro. Would not not was, go over what's as well. The, what's the that? Yeah. These these last, I guess, year and a half. Let's say starting around you know part of 2015. It seems like you've been as prolific as ever. Let's just recount for people. You completed Derek, which was this series about a care worker, which has its own autobiographical elements for you, which we can talk about. Shooting two movies for Netflix, first special correspondence about two journalists who are sent to report on a war and then don't their airline tickets get lost so they have to fake it. And then David Brent Life on the Road, where as we referenced, the return to David Brent. And then now for the first time in seven years, stand up with humanity. Is it is it purely coincidental that all of this happened at once or did something motivate you to to just fire it up right now it doesn't happen all at once because i think people see you know the tip of the iceberg so when i pop up on telly you know for half an hour that half an hour has taken me six weeks to write and a a week to film you know so six half hours you times it by six so for six hours of telly which is what my most series are the office extras Idiot Abroad, Derek, mm-hmm. it's all been too serious and special. And by serious, I mean six half hours. Right, right. So, you know, everything I've done 
loosely, is about seven and a half hours of telly. And that seven and a half hours on every series I've ever done has taken me three years. So when you look at it like that, three years equals seven hours. Maybe I'm not so prolific. What makes me look prolific is that I jump from one series to the next and kill it. I kill it. What is essentially not even halfway through an American right. series. I've never had anything cancelled because I kill it before they can. And you've always said to <coughs> you think that two is the number of series at which to kill it. Why is two the right number? I, I, th- I, I think I think two and especially is exactly the right number because I, I don't know. I put all my eggs in one basket. I try and do you know de- definitive things in any series I do, whether it's subject or themed or or whatever. I think if you think the six hours is. That's three movies, mm-hmm. and I think you can tell a story. You can you can get in and out without repeating yourself. You know, the office, the will they, won't they, with Dawn, just right. I think you know, Andy Millman, is he a, an idiot or not? Just <laughs> right. You know, Derek, is kindness gonna win? Right. You know, I, I think if you do that for twenty hours, people will go, yeah, we get it. You know, and. <laughs> And I do everything myself. I haven't got a team of 20 writers. You know, I literally do it. it, it so, and I have the attention span of a toddler. <laughs> I want to do lots of different things. Right. I think I, I do it for me. I do it for that sort of... So you don't I, want I, to... Unapologetically, I, I, this, I do this because I enjoy it. If you're getting tired of it, it's not a good sign for, for other people. If, right. Honestly, it's right. not a good sign for anyone. Right. No. And, and it is hard work. Don't get me wrong. It, but I, I wake up every morning and go, I can do what I want today. There's no greater buzz than that, and so I do. And that's what the Oscars have got to say to me. Yeah. You no. can do what you want today. I'll go, I'll take it. I hope they do. But uh, <laughs> So with, with David Brent coming back, though, particularly, specifically in, in Life on the Road, did that feel like a risk in any way? Yeah, but I, do, I don't know that risk. I don't know what that risk is, because what am I really risking? I, I'm risking some people not liking it. Well, I, I, you, you risk that every day. You risk that just being alive. And but some would say, okay, like could this, could this tarnish what is currently a pristine memory for care. people of this guy? You but don't I don't care because it's like when people say they say things like, oh no, so and so is not bringing out another album. I think you don't need to listen to it. <laughs> right, right. That doesn't need to affect your life. <laughs> it doesn't make sense for me to 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 dread something you don't have to watch or listen. I don't. I don't care. I've but were you a me. Breaking Bad fan? Did you watch the show? Yeah, I did. Okay, so when you hear they're going to do a year later, Better Call Saul. Yeah, I mean, my reaction was, "What do you have? There, you have nothing to gain. It can only, it can. It, how do you top such a great thing?" But I, but, but what what I don't do, yeah, is think that they shouldn't do it or they're risking something. Because, what I do is, right. well, maybe I won't like that as much as Breaking Bad. But you know, for years. I didn't watch anything like The Sopranos because I thought it couldn't be as good as The Sopranos. But then I watched The Wire yeah. and then I watched The Bridge and then I watched The Killing. Mm-hmm. And the, it's madness to think like that. Right. You know, it's people fear, they fear not having the same experience as they did last, well, have a new experience. Right, or I don't get it. I just don't <laughs> get it. I, I, I know you might as well never do anything again. As soon as you do something that's good, never right. do anything again. <laughs> Never do anything again in case it's not as good as that thing you did. I don't care. Yeah. And I, I, I made it different enough, and I was excited, and it was, it was, it was for me and for fans. I, you know, it was like catching up with an old friend. It was never going to be another series. You know, I, I think that was a, you know. But it kind of started with the comic relief thing that where, where you. Brought yes, it. it was a very gradual process. So you know, when you say I stopped the office in like two thousand and three, mm-hmm. it never really went away. There wasn't a day when I wasn't managing the the estate of David Brent, whether it was given, <laughs> you know, given permission for Martin Freeman on a chat show to show a clip of it, or a quiz machine in a pub. I started making the American remake about a year after, you know. Then seven local remakes around the world, which I, I and you're was involved ex- with all. Of them. I was exec produced on every single one of them, you know. Which means uh, how involved? Inquisit- like how involved is that actually? Uh, the most involved was the American. The most, and even then, after the first series, you know, I said you've got to do it yourself. I'll cash the check. But <laughs> this is this isn't my this isn't my baby artistically, right. you know. And to be too involved. Which, which I really wasn't that uh, involved at all, apart from the initial sort of talks and everything. It, it's like 
David Bowie letting someone cover his song and he keeps turning up to the studio and going, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do that like that. Right. I go, no, this isn't yours, David. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like we yeah. might as well just release your version, right, you right, know? Right. In fact, I was offered the lead role in it the first in time. In The American. And I said, that's ludicrous. Why, why would I do that? Because you just didn't want to repeat yourself. I didn't want to commit to seven years. And that was the, that's the requirement for NBC. You got to, or yeah. any broadcast now. Yeah. So, but you did want it to live on, but, but with, with someone else doing all the work right, and right. me getting the royalties. <laughs> <laughs> so, so today, or 15 years after you first introduced us to David Brent, how much does taking him out of the office in Life on the Road, taking him out of that setting, impact? the job of writing and playing this guy is it is it harder or easier to get no, him out of that it's it's the same because once i found again the character dictated what was right and wrong you know he's he wanted to be famous that's why he did that documentary when he was the head of Wernham hog he wanted to be famous that's why he got his guitar out in episode four of series one, because mm-hmm. he wanted to show the people that he's is right. a writer people like that never let it go they never let that go right they pretend they do, but they don't let it go. And so I thought, and then the world behind his back went, well, we all want to be pop stars. Right. And since The Office, we've had American Idol, X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, America's Voice, Got Talent, we've got these, uh, Apprentice. Yeah. All those things have yeah. happened in that last 15 years. And I thought, well, hold on, everyone wants to be famous. Of course David Brent would. Right. He started it they all. He started it. Yeah. Right? And of course he'd want a part of that. And it, right. was, it was like, and now he's 55 so it's really quite tragic and sad. He's still chasing it. Yeah. And he's still chasing it. And now he's paying for it because right. he's got a bit of money. Right. And so after 10 years, I said I'd never do The Office again. I never would. I'd never bring back The Office. I did a little thing for Comic Relief, 10-year anniversary. I just wrote a little 10-minute sketch of what David Wren's doing now, you know, just to get the phone vote up. That's what you do. You do a little <laughs> thing and they say, after 10 years, you'll see David Wren uh, right. pledge and, you know, that's what you do. You're doing it for charity. But again, I was doing it because it was fun. Yeah. And I thought, well, what would he be doing now? And I, I made, in this sketch, I made him, okay, he was, uh, he's still in Slough, obviously. That was pretty funny. He's still in Slough. He's a rep because he ended up as a rep at the end of the office. Oh, he's managing acts. Now he's given up, again, a bit autobiographical. He's given up on his own dreams, but he's managing a guy. Mm-hmm. And of course, it all comes back to, so he does, he's got this young rapper who's meant to be doing, he's paying for his demos. He worms his way and he does his own song, Equality Street. He's got a black guy, friend now. Of course, which he can't get over. <laughs> he cannot get over that. Again, a little thing that we heard, we, we saw that in the early, in the office that, he, you know, he wanted to walk into a room and go, I'm not a racist. Right, right. You know, he, the PC culture had just started right. and he was aware of it, but didn't quite understand it. So mm. it's social <laughs> faux pas. And so all those themes carried on. So he's the sort of same old Brent, but he's nicer relatively to the rest of the world. That's the big change, as we spoke about. And so that went out and it, it got a really great reaction. I think 25 million people watched it. Mm-hmm which is incredible yeah, for England. Really, I mean, yeah. there's nothing here, but Nobody. In, England, in England it's off the charts. Yeah. And then the song, someone put the song on YouTube and it, it got like five million views immediately. Right. Again, doesn't sound a lot these days, no, but, but it know. was, but you know, that, that was, so we, so I knew there was a, an appetite there. I did a couple of gigs. I thought, oh, I've written quite a lot of, lot of songs for David Brent now. I wrote three in the office, you know, Free Love, Freeway and Paris Nights and Spaceman. Right. But I only wrote one verse, right. you know. And so I wrote the second verses of those and I had a Quality Street and I wrote a couple of others. I thought we'd do a little gig again around that time just for 10 anniversary. Yeah. So we booked a little... And I bumped into Andy Burroughs, who is in a band called Razor Light and various other bands, a great musician. He said, leave with me. We used his band. They rehearsed the songs. It was great. And I thought, oh, why has David Brent got such a good band? Right. <gasps> He's paying for it. <laughs> so in the, in the gig, in this little gig we did, little 500-seater, for which there was 100,000 ticket requests. Crazy. Right? Crazy. crazy yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, and Wembley called. I went, yeah. hold on, what? this is madness. Why has he got this great band? How is he selling out? So in the when I did the live gig, I built into the narrative, made it a bit cabaret, of David Brent complaining they don't have a drink with him. <laughs> He's not making any money off this gig because right. they charged him too much. Right. So they're session musicians. This isn't a real rock band. And that was the seed of the idea. And I thought, right. that's exactly what he'd be doing now. He'd be paying to be famous. Now he could. Now with YouTube and all these things. So... Women going up to his room and cleaning out his... Uh... Of course. Again, this guy, a delusional <laughs> man. <laughs> it's really sad. And I I always decided that I did want our sympathies to be a bit with him now. Yeah. 
And but that was the seed of the idea. It was a man, a vanity project, a man who was still quite vain and desperate, but he was out of his league. He was just out of his league by today's standards of, you know, uh, fame, obsession. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So with the last minute, if I if I may, just sort of a rapid fire thing. I know that there is. Is there anything that one should not joke about? I used to hear a lot about the Holocaust and the N word, which you've dealt with in your comedy. Now the big one seems to be transgenderism. You took a little flack for for the way you you know. I talk it, about this in my new stand-up. Right, in humanity, right? I, I t- is that the new sort of Holocaust and N word? I don't. I don't even know what that means. Do you mean that it's, it's the thing uh, that you're? It's the most dangerous. If you touch that wire, you're. But what get. do you mean by dangerous, though? What's dangerous about it? Other people won't like what you say. That's not dangerous. Doesn't bother you. It's not dangerous. Go go into a war zone is dangerous. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's like right. saying something that some people don't agree with isn't dangerous. So there's nothing you wouldn't touch. There's no, there's no subject I wouldn't joke about it, but it depends what the joke is. I talk about this in humanity. You know, right. no harm can come from discussing taboo subjects. A writer isn't asked. A journalist isn't asked. Is there anything you wouldn't write right, about? Right, right, right. No. Why is a comedian? Because we assume that the joke has a victim in it, or the joke is anti that subject. Or pro a bad subject. It depends. It's how it's it can used. be. Uh, it's how it, the, you know there is no subject that you can't joke about. The other thing that comes from offence is where people mistake the subject of a joke with the target of the joke, and they're not the same. They can be confused. But someone not getting your joke isn't your problem, yeah. and someone not liking your joke isn't, isn't your problem. problem. But that's not to say I go out to offend this yeah, churlish. Yeah. I don't say things outside my moral conscience. Right, I right. say things within my moral conscience. But everyone's moral conscience is different. Sure. So I think my targets are right. They are fair. <laughs> but some people just don't like words being said, whatever the context. They don't like the subject. Why? It's, 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 it's crazy. It's falling into the hands of the people. You know, the political correctness is, is great. I think it's a really good rule of thumb, but it's just that. It's political correctness. Whereas, right. you know, within that, some things do need to be talked about. You know, political correctness doesn't say you can't talk about things. It means you, you, you must be, I suppose, aware that everyone's different. And, uh, and that's, that, that's, that's very different. But to say that you, you can't talk about things is, is, is a nonsense to me. You know, I was told not to mention, when I came to America, I was told not to mention I was an atheist. Made sure it was the first thing I mentioned. That <laughs> <laughs> didn't kill you. It was. Uh, what do you envy the most in other comedians or a another comedian? Is there something? If they've you got really... a dog, really? Oh, I want a dog. <laughs> I can't have a dog. I You're not allowed much. one at um, all. What do I envy most? Of oh, oh, everything and uh, and anything. It depends. You always think of. Uh, you, I, I see comedians doing things that I don't do and can't do, and I think, oh, that's great. So uh, I, I'm very conscious that I do what I'm good at and I know about. I don't I don't see a comedian who does great surreal stuff and think, oh, I'll have a go at that. <laughs> I think, oh, my God, he's amazing at that. Right. I couldn't do That's that. That's not your thing. But I'm not jealous of anyone because I've chosen what I do. And there's enough for everyone. Everyone's, I'm different to everyone else and they're all different to me. But there's nothing, there's nothing that would make me think. Because also, if you're jealous of someone... You can change it. If you go, oh, I'm jealous of that bloke that he's got... Go work on it. Yeah. Uh, ...green hair, well, dye your hair. <laughs> right, right. You know, <laughs> Is Trump good for comedy? On the one hand, he's a buffoon. On the other hand, the stakes are so high that some people have a hard time finding it, you know, well, funny. Well, he's good for comedy in the sense that now when people say, is there anything that a comedian shouldn't say, I say, what? With the things the president yeah, says right. and gets away with it, we've got nothing to worry <laughs> right, about. Right, right. We say things as jokes. He says things and he means them. Mm-hmm. So that's good for comedy. Yeah. I can just point to their president and go, well, look yeah. what he said. <laughs> I, I suppose it's bad for comedy in a way because I always, for me, when I first do an humanity tour, I'd always played the guy who did say the, an awful thing. And I was either playing the, the the buffoon and getting it wrong, and that's what people were laughing at the blind spot, or I was, you know, I, I, I'm saying it somewhat satirically or ironically. And when I first started doing this, I I started doing that, and I thought, oh, there are some people like this now that are really like this, and I'd hate for people to think that I mean this. Right, right, right. So I suppose I was more conscious uh, of playing the right wing bore <laughs> or going after. Going after the things I always did. Like, you know, for for example, you know, when I went after, and I didn't really, but when I went after the the entertainment elite, right. that was a year before 
everyone went after them really. Yeah. And I thought, well, I, oh, you mean you know, with the, the, well, the, the and well, the you know thing with Hamilton and you know and the thing with Meryl Streep. Yes. That, oh yeah. And yeah, I sort yeah. of like I teased them. Right. He he went after them and he's the president of the United right. States. <laughs> so. You know, you don't want to. You don't want to be on the wrong side, or you. Don't, not, not there's a. I don't mean there's a right and wrong side. I mean, that's not what I was doing right. when I was teasing them. I wasn't doing it because they'd hurt my feelings, right. or I'd, I, I, I. They didn't have the same politics as right. me. I did it because it was right for the room, and it was right for the day, right. and it was you know. So I don't want. You never want people to lump you in with a, a crowd you're not a part of. Sure. It happens all the time. People say, oh, he's like so-and-so. I go, no, I'm not like him. He's going out there to hurt people's feelings. I'm not. Or, no, I'm not like him. He's not, he's, we, you know, if you deal in offence, you can deal with it in very different ways to other comedians. I'm doing it my, I'm doing it my way. I can justify everything I do. And, you know, I just think, if I'm apologising for things I did yesterday and I'm carrying on doing them, they're in, it's insincere anyway. Right, right. I'm a 55-year-old man. I know what's right and wrong. <laughs> so it, it, it doesn't make sense for me to say sorry for something I did yesterday. I was 55 then as right. well. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, the last last thing here is just the New York Times recently suggested that there might be two Ricky Gervaises or two Ricky Gervais schools of comedy. There's kind of the more ruthless side behind The Office, Extras, the Golden Globes, No Holds Barred. And then there's sort of a sentimentalist when you look at Derek the invention of lying, special correspondence, some of this other stuff. Is that wrong? And is there one of those two? Let's say there there are two Ricky Gervaises. Which of those two do you actually, is the actual Ricky Gervais closer well, to? Well, uh, I'm both of them because there are some things you have to be serious about and you, you uncompromised and you have to say what's right. And, and facts, facts don't have an agenda. And so, you know, you should, you should say what's, if it's that forum for telling the truth, you should say it. And then there's a time that is is outside of comedy, you know? I don't think it's confusing that I make jokes about terrible things in comedy and then I do charity work for animal welfare. Well, mm-hmm. well one's real and one isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like when people... I, I'm playing a persona on stage. I'm playing... I'm an actor as well, right. you know? Um, it seems odd that that you're held accountable for fiction, like you're held accountable for doing real things. And people get this argument all the time on Twitter. I'm this, I'm some sort of, for some reason I've put myself as a, I don't know, Twitter police for explaining what freedom of speech is. Right. And I say, well, you should, people should speak what they want. And they say, people always say something like, well, Hitler did that. No, Hitler didn't do that. Hitler did the opposite. Right. Hitler stopped people saying what they want. Right. And also, it wasn't the things Hitler said that was the problem. Right. It was the things he did. Right. You know, people, they, they're fuzzy thinkers out there, you know? And just because it's an inconvenient truth, it doesn't make it less of a truth. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, I am in polite society. I don't run into churches and say, <laughs> there's no heaven. Like it. <laughs> It's not. It's not the forum for it. I don't care what people believe with right. it. But if someone asks me, do I believe in God? I say no, I don't, because that's the truth. I don't. I'm not saying it's the truth. There isn't a God. I'm saying it's the truth that I don't believe in God. Sure. So I, I make sure if it would say, is there a God? I go, I don't know. I don't believe so. <laughs> you know. And I, I, I just think if you're if you're honest and thoughtful, then I don't think you can you can go wrong. You're the best. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was a pleasure. A lot of fun. Cheers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.